If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, please turn them to Hebrews chapter 3. For the sake of our guests, my name is Chris Patton. I have the joy of serving here alongside my friend Jeremy Bell as one of the pastors here. I just want to add my voice to his and say thank you. Thank you for being with us here today. Today we continue our expository preaching series through the book of Hebrews. The title of our series is The Supremacy of Christ. And our sermon text today is Hebrews 3, verses 1 to 6. These are the words of God. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we, we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you especially, Lord, for how your word focuses our attention on Jesus Christ and empowers us to live for him. So, Heavenly Father, we come to you together this morning and we ask you, we ask you by your Holy Spirit, through your word, to do just that. Focus our attention Focus our gaze on Jesus Christ and inspire us to keep on hoping in him, trusting in him, and obeying him, even as we give ourselves to building his church and his kingdom. We ask all this in the name of Jesus and everyone said together, amen, amen. One thing we as Christians need that we don't always feel we need is to be strongly exhorted and challenged to grow in our walk with Jesus Christ. I think it's safe to say that most of us, generally speaking, would prefer a glad word of encouragement or a consoling word of comfort over a strong word of warning or bold word of challenge. Just think about it. When you get up in the morning, you sit down with a hot cup of coffee for your morning devotions, and I hope you do enjoy that. It is great. There are few things as enjoyable in life as waking up to a hot cup of coffee and taking that first sip right as you sit in front of your Bible. So if you don't, if you haven't done that before, I highly recommended uh, coffee and the Bible. 
gifts from God. But just, just think about this for a second. If you enjoy coffee, when you sit down with that hot cup of coffee for your morning devotions, with your Bible laid out, open before you, what, what do you typically hope to find there in your devotions? What do you typically hope to find in your Bible? Well, I'd venture to say that most of us don't take that first sip of coffee, if you enjoy coffee, and pray something like, All right, Lord, I'm ready. Bring on the warning. (laughs) Confront me. Challenge me. Correct me. Now, I imagine that some of us have prayed along those lines at times, but as a pattern, I think most of us, when we open our Bibles, we probably most often hope to find encouragement, consolation, guidance, or something else in that vein. And obviously, it is right and good for us to look to Scripture for those things. Certainly, God gave us His Word in part to encourage us and to comfort us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What a comfort just to read those words here this morning. What an encouragement that verse and many others like them are to our souls. Yet in saying that, I trust that you know the Word of God is not only a warm blanket of comfort for the soul. Though it is that, God's Word is also sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's Word is also profitable, Paul says, for teaching, for rebuke, and training in righteousness. In Hebrews, while some passages indeed console, it is really important that we understand in much of this book, The double-edged sword is out, so to speak. In fact, that very verse, if you were to flip over in your Bible, comes directly from Hebrews 4.14 in the context of a sobering warning that the author begins to issue right here in chapter 3. Our passage today is the opening paragraph of a long, sobering warning against hardening one's heart to the Lord in unbelief, leading a person to fall away from the living God. And while I'm glad to say most here are not in imminent danger of apostasy, it's still important that we understand that this section still applies to us. It still applies to us. And that's because unbelief the root sin, that worst-case scenario, leads to apostasy. Unbelief is a temptation common to all believers, and it's a temptation that's common to us every day. 
Sadly, we all have our moments or seasons where unbelief, fear, doubt, lack of trust in God's character and promises, perhaps even dark thoughts of God and cynicism towards Him. We all have season where those seasons or moments where those things can dull our senses. They can grip our hearts and they can, they can cloud our vision of Jesus. They can cloud our vision of Jesus Christ. What a faithful, trustworthy Savior that He is. In light of this reality, in light of our proneness to the sin of unbelief, we all, every single one of us in this room, we all need both the loving warning and gracious challenge of chapter 3 into, into chapter 4. We need the loving warning and gracious challenge of this section to help extinguish whatever embers of unbelief may be flickering in our own souls, even today. And we need this section not only to extinguish unbelief, but to inspire us as well to put all of our hope, all of our faith, all of our trust in Christ himself. This section begins appropriately, the section of warning, of challenge. This section begins appropriately in our passage today with a pointed challenge to focus our attention more fully and completely on our Savior, Jesus Christ, which is, I trust you know, the antidote to all fear and unbelief. The antidote to all fear and unbelief is focusing our attention on Jesus. These verses that we're going to look at this morning also challenge our perspective on the church. And they exhort us as well to persevere, to keep going, to run hard in the faith. So may God open our hearts by his Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, this morning and meet us in a powerful way as we allow God's word, God's word to challenge us in these ways. With that, let us now consider a survey of the text. We're just going to go verse by verse through this. Now in verse 1, excuse me, in chapters 1 and 2, you'll recall from prior weeks, the author extolled Christ's supremacy over the angels, as well as his high priestly work. Now in verse 1 of chapter 3, in view of everything that has been said, he exhorts his readers, those who share in a heavenly calling, you see it right there in verse 1, he exhorts them again. Please look there. He exhorts them again. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. As we've explained in prior weeks, this exhortation was necessary due to the strong temptation the first readers faced to abandon faith in Christ and return to the comfortable confines of Judaism. They were tempted to do so, you will recall, out of fear in order to avoid the persecution that had begun to come upon Christians in the Roman Empire. However, in order for fear... In order for fear to not dictate their response to persecution, 
That would require the original readers, above all, to see Christ as the all-glorious Savior and great treasure that he truly, in reality, is. Just consider, in order for them to gladly suffer for Christ's sake, they needed to behold Christ anew and see Christ as far more glorious, far superior to and better than every aspect of the old covenant that they were tempted to go back to. Again, the author's burden, as later verses in chapter 3 demonstrate, was to drive away sinful fear and unbelief and to stir renewed faith in Christ, who is supreme over all. So the author urges his readers, as those possessing a heavenly calling, to again, verse 1, get back to the basics. He urges them to get back to the fundamental reality of who Jesus was and is. He exhorts them to consider Jesus, please look there again, the apostle and high priest of our confession. In the original language, the word translated apostle also means messenger. This reminds us that Jesus is the ultimate messenger of our confession of faith. Christ himself, through his person and his work, has disclosed, revealed, and delivered the gospel message to us. So he's the, high, the apostle of our confession, and he's the high priest of our confession as well. Just as the Old Testament high priest made atonement for the sins of the people, so Jesus as our high priest has made atonement for our sins, yours and mine, and thereby secured for us, his people, forgiveness of sins and access into God's presence. Aren't you grateful that we have a great high priest in Jesus? who laid down his life so that at any time, at any moment of the day, we can draw near to God and enjoy his nearness and presence. That's because of Jesus and his high priestly work. And this is a primary theme in the chapters that follow. In verse 2, again look there, the author goes on to say that Jesus, like Moses, was a faithful servant over God's house. God's house, as verse 5 indicates, is a metaphor, an analogy for God's household made up of, comprised of, God's people. God's house or household was Israel under the old covenant and is the church in the new. So Moses, the supreme figure of the old covenant, the author says, was a faithful servant. He was a faithful servant over God's house. However, Verse 3, the author goes on to argue that Jesus is superior to Moses and therefore worthy. He is worthy of more glory than him. The reason that Jesus is greater than Moses is that, as verse 3 explains, ultimately Moses' status, his identity, just like every other Israelite, was merely that of member of God's household. 
In contrast, verse 4, God is the builder of the house. Christ is God's son. And therefore, Christ is no mere member of the household. Instead, he owns the house. (laughs) The point here is that in God's hierarchy, Christ stands above the house. In ultimate authority over the house, and hence is far greater than Moses, who is merely a member of and servant in that same house. So Moses was faithful in God's house as a, as a servant, again verse 4, but Christ was faithful as a son, verse 5. Moses was faithful to, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. This refers to the fact that the system of worship which Moses had built with the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the ceremonies, they were never an end in and of themselves, but instead those things pointed forward to things spoken later. Those things pointed forward to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And as a faithful servant and owner of the house, Jesus demonstrated his faithfulness, I remind you, as our great high priest. By shedding his own blood for every member of his household, the church, on that cross. And he continues to be faithful to his church and tenderly care for his church and build his church to this very day. Verse 6 then concludes this section. It identifies members of God's household as those who hold fast their confidence and persevere to the end. This reminds us that while many profess faith in Jesus, ultimately it is only those who persevere to the end. It is only those who endure to the end who by their perseverance demonstrate, they prove that they are God's people and members of his household, the church. So that's an overview of the text. And in the remainder of our time, I want to highlight three specific ways that this passage challenges us. It challenges us first to focus our attention on Christ. That's the first point. It challenges us to focus our attention on Christ. In verse 1, please look there again with me. The author exhorts his readers to consider Jesus. As one scholar notes, the word in the original translated in the ESV, consider, means looking at or considering attentively. Looking at. Or considering attentively. The Brian Standard Bible translation renders it, I like this a lot. Set your focus on Jesus. Set, this is God's word to each and every one of us. Set your focus on Jesus. So the exhortation, the challenge of verse 1 could be summarized in this way. Christian. In the midst of the tribulations, And sorrows that you face, focus your attention on Jesus. In the midst of your tribulations and your trials, intentionally 
deliberately, purposefully focus on Him. More specifically, the author challenges them, focus your minds very specifically on the Jesus who is the apostle and high priest. Notice what it says, of our confession, of our confession. Over the centuries, over the centuries, many have had a kind of faith in Jesus that sadly was not saving faith because they believed in a Jesus that was not the Jesus of our shared confession of faith. That is, their, their faith was not located in the true Jesus, in the Jesus of the Bible. So, for instance, the first century Gnostics denied the full humanity of Christ. If you read the New Testament, that's in the background. Many of the authors are battling and speaking against first century Gnostic heresies. So they denied the full humanity of Jesus. They believed and taught that Jesus merely appeared to be human, but that he did not really take on in the incarnation a real human flesh. Well, you know, you know this to be true. The scriptures are clear. Jesus was and is truly God. He's divine, but he's also truly human. He, in the incarnation, took on our humanity took on real, live human flesh. Sadly, the Gnostics believed in a false Jesus. There's no such thing as a Jesus who is divine but not human. They believed in a false Jesus, a Jesus who did not exist and thus could not save anyone. Heresies related to Jesus' identity, they are many, they are plentiful, and they continue today. Now, just a few examples, well-known examples. While they profess high respect for Jesus, Mormons believe that Jesus is just one God about among many, and that even people can become God. So they profess a high degree of respect for Jesus. And there are a lot of really decent, good, so to speak, uh, Mormon people, but that's what they say. He's just he's one God among many. And Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that Jesus has the highest status of any created being, but do not believe. They don't believe that Jesus is the eternal God of all. They believe that the Father is the eternal God of all, that he is Jehovah. That's the name Jehovah's Witnesses. It's very sad. In spite of their evident sincerity, the, the Jesus, these cults, and others believe in is a false Jesus. False Jesus that cannot, that cannot, that cannot save. He is not the Jesus. The Jesus that they profess and believe in is not the Jesus of our shared confession of faith. This is, by the way, brothers and sisters, just if I could digress for a second, this is why doctrine matters. Sometimes Christians will say, we don't really need doctrine or theology. All we need is Jesus. Have you heard that before? It's a somewhat common refrain, actually. We don't really need doctrine or theology. All we need is, is Jesus. And my hopefully, uh, hopefully gracious response to that is this. Okay, so then what Jesus are you talking about? The Gnostic Jesus? Is that who we're talking about? The Jehovah's Witness Jesus? The Mormon Jesus or the Jesus of the Bible? What Jesus are we talking about here? So I trust it's 
evident to you that as soon as someone begins to define which Jesus they are talking about, they are in the realm of doctrine. They're already in the realm of doctrine. They're already in the realm of theology. So, point here, sound doctrine matters. Sound theology matters. It, in fact, has eternal consequences. You believe wrong things about Jesus. That can lead to eternal destruction. That's why I'm so grateful to be in a church, frankly, and be in a denomination that values sound doctrine and sound teaching. I'm so grateful for our the Sovereign Grace Confession of Faith, which is so clear on these important matters and others like them, and holds its churches accountable to preaching the truth. So here in Hebrews 3, the call is to focus our attention very specifically on the Jesus of our confession. That is the Jesus defined by sound biblical doctrine. He is fully God. He is fully man. He is the Son of God. And he is the Savior of the world. And as has already been said in this series, I do want to say it again. In the persecution that was beginning to come upon them, what the original readers needed most, hear this, it was not for the affliction to be removed. What they needed most was not for the persecution to go away. Instead, what God by His Holy Spirit determined they needed most was to refocus their attention on the Jesus of their shared confession of faith. This is what they needed most because in every era, in every time period, when believers see Christ for who He truly is, when we see Christ for who He truly is, well then, that stirs faith. And it drives away unbelief and sinful fear. And it puts everything else in life in proper perspective. Brothers and sisters, when Christ is seen as the all-glorious Son of God, when Christ is seen as sovereign King and loving Savior, well then the powerful, the painful trials, when we see Him that way, the painful trials of this life begin to lose their power to hijack our peace. And to be clear, that's not because the trials somehow become less painful. But rather, it's because in the most painful hardships, we know that no matter what happens, we still have Jesus. And let me tell you about my Jesus. Jesus is absolutely sovereign. Jesus is completely good. Jesus is perfectly loving. Jesus is fully faithful. Jesus is always, always with us. He promises he will never, no, never leave us or forsake us. Come what may. That's the Jesus. That's the Jesus of our confession of faith, brothers and sisters. And wonderfully, when by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
this awareness settles upon us. When Christ appears in my eyes, in your eyes, as he truly is, well, then our souls can be at peace, even in the midst of painful trials and difficulty. This is, by the way, what has motivated countless Christians throughout the history of the church to joyfully suffer martyrdom for Christ. They had a clear vision of Christ that steadied them and enabled them to overcome fear and stare death in the face with their souls still confident. Can you believe that? Staring death in the face. Yet their souls are at peace. Why? Because they knew their Savior. They knew Jesus. I want to be more like that. Their peace was the fruit of beholding Jesus Christ. And this is why it is of utmost importance, brothers and sisters, that we preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Because it is in contemplating the gospel, it is in considering the gospel that we behold Christ's glory and his greatness. It is in the gospel that we behold Christ's mercy and his love for us. It is in the gospel that we behold his grace and his goodness. And it is as we behold Christ in the gospel that unbelief and anxiety and fear is driven away. And our faith in Jesus is renewed and our souls are set at rest, and at peace. How does that happen? By beholding our Savior in the gospel. The reformer Martin Luther famously said, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. And he says this, most necessary is that we know this article well, teach it to others, I love this. And beat it into their heads continually. (laughs) Most necessary is that we know this article well. That we know this article well. The gospel. Teach it to others and beat it into their heads continually. (laughs) And as a pastoral team, just to be up front, this is our resolved commitment to you. Is the same as Martin Luther. It's the same as the author of Hebrews. There's redundancy in this book. It's not easy to preach through the book of Hebrews without feeling like you're repeating yourself. Well, the truth is we are repeating ourselves every week. And why is that? Because the author of Hebrews is seeking to take the gospel and to beat it into their heads continually. (laughs) And that's our commitment to you. As well. To beat it first into our own heads, by the way. Because we need it. And then to buy God's grace. Hopefully graciously. (laughs) Beat it into your heads continually. And the reason is simple, okay? It's not real. It's not because Martin Luther said it. This is the biblical emphasis. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, and please look there sometime, um, and read this. Actually, maybe we should just Take a look. 
1 Corinthians 15. I didn't plan to go here, but we're going to do this. Because this is important. 1 Corinthians 15. 1. I'm waiting until I hear the pages stop flipping. Those of you who have an advantage with the phone, <laughs> put it in the search. Okay. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here's the key verse, verse 3. For I delivered to you, this is the word of God, Grace Community Church, to us. For I delivered to you, as of what? Say it out loud. First importance. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What comes next? It's the gospel that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So, according to the Apostle Paul, what is of first importance in the Christian life? What's this message? It is the gospel message. It's keeping our focus. And you see that theme reiterated. It's in Hebrews too. Aren't we seeing again? Chapter 2, verse 1, consider Jesus. Now in our text today, chapter 3, verse 1, set your focus on Jesus. The scriptures just come again and again. Set your focus here, over here. This is what's of first importance. And that's what's happening here in Hebrews 3.1. So we need to keep the gospel ourselves and as a church that which is of first importance. To borrow from C.J. Mahaney, the founder, one of the founders of our family of churches, we need to keep the gospel the main thing. C.J. preached a message many years ago. Um, some of you may be familiar with it. I, I know you're familiar with it. He preached a, many, a message many years ago that has had a significant impact, actually a huge impact on some of us here in this room. And in that sermon, C.J. declared in a loud voice, Keep the main thing, the main thing, the main thing. I grew up here in CJ preached, so ask me sometime, and I'll actually do a pretty good imitation of how CJ actually uh, said that and expressed that. But that sentiment is fully biblical. Keep the main thing, keep the main thing. This is God's word to us, each and every one of us and to our church. Keep the main thing, the main thing, the main thing. C.J., after preaching that, he then graciously challenged us by asking, is the cross, is the gospel the main thing in your life? Is it the main thing in your life? And I just want to take this opportunity to lovingly challenge all of us here today by asking you the same thing. I want to ask you the same thing. Think about this. Pray about it. Is the gospel in your life, who Jesus is and what he has done, is it your primary focus? Is it what you think about? Is it what you are preoccupied with? Is it what you have, Hebrews 3, 1, set your focus on? Is celebrating Jesus, rejoicing in Jesus, resting in Jesus, proclaiming Jesus what your life is about above all? Or is it about something else? If you, like me, sense your need to refocus and recenter your life on the gospel today, and really every day, I want to encourage you to read or reread C.J. Mahaney's Cross-Centered Life. 
that message was turned into a book, take your time with it. It is a really easy read, but the information, the material in that book is super important. Super important. If we, if we can just get the simple truth that he articulates in that, in that book, and more clearly, <laughs> Hebrews 3.1, 1 Corinthians 15.1, if we can get that, it will produce joy and peace and rest. And oh, what God has for us as we, as we continue to consider the gospel and keep the main thing, the main thing. We've got 10 copies back there of that book on the table. And I'd encourage you, if you haven't read it, please pick it up and read it. And if you have read it, read it again. And ask the Holy Spirit to move. Because you know what? We easily move on from the gospel. Don't we? I know I do. We easily make other things in our lives a primary focus. God wants to recenter us. And I think he's brought us here this morning to help recenter us. The reason this matters is that in the New Testament, all fruitful Christian living flows from this. All peace, all joy, all stability, all good things come from beholding Christ in the gospel. And I had a longer section on this, um, but I cut it. We could keep going on. There's much to re- Keeping Christ the center of our lives, is. there's no more joyful topic and no more fruitful topic that we could discuss. So may the Lord help us to do that together. Second way this text challenges us, this passage challenges us, it challenges us to view the church in the way that God views the church. We live in a time, you may have noticed, when the church of Jesus Christ is not held in particularly high esteem, even among professing Christians. Some of you know that in recent decades and years, surveys and statistics have shown an overall downward trend in church attendance. And this is very sad, something that's been happening in in the evangelical world. Attendance just gradually, year after year, in local churches going down. Many have also observed that among, that among those who do attend church, they have adopted a highly American, um, consumer-driven mentality that's sort of like a what's-in-it-for-me mindset. So church attendance down, and then those who are going have this kind of attitude, what's in, what's in it for me? I first read about the prevalence of this phenomenon in the 1990s. It was one of the first... Uh, books that I read as a young man on the church. Uh, and it speaks, Charles Colson, the late Charles Colson, speaks to this tendency. He wrote the following. He said, people flit about in search of what suits their taste at the moment. It's what some have called the McChurch mentality. Today it might be McDonald's for a Big Mac. Tomorrow it's Wendy's salad bar. Or perhaps the wonderful chicken sandwiches at Chick-fil-A. Apparently Mr. Colson liked Chick-fil-A, as do many of us in this room. Thus the church becomes just another retail outlet. Faith, just another commodity. People change congregations and preachers and even denominations as readily as they change banks. Or grocery stores. That's an indictment, isn't it? It's sad. But true. That was 1992 when Colson wrote that. And it doesn't seem that over time this situation has much improved. 31 years later, researcher and missiologist Ed Stetzer in August of 2023 wrote as follows. Today it is common for churchgoers, especially in the middle rows. Now that's the first time I ever heard the 
the ex- expression, middle row. So if you're sitting in the middle row, uh, I don't think negatively of you for sitting sitting there. Not sure where that comes from. Uh, if you know, ex- come up and explain it to me after the meeting. Today it is common for churchgoers, especially in the middle rows, to view the church as a distributor of religious goods and services. And many churches are happy to take on that role. Ouch. The result is a more passive church attendee focused on what they can receive for their benefit rather than serving God and giving themselves to his mission. In other words, a consumer mindset prevails. Brothers and sisters, into this common consumer evangelical mindset, our passage today speaks. Our text reveals how God himself, how Christ himself views the church. And he doesn't view it just just like another grocery store. I know I'm preaching to the choir here. But he doesn't view it just like another grocery store. And he doesn't view it as just another retail outlet or commodity. You know, take it or leave it. No, Hebrews 3 highlights Jesus' high view of the church. As it reminds us that the church is what God himself It is what Jesus himself has chosen to build. God owns the house. Jesus owns the house as the son and is building the house. That's verse 3. In the Gospels, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's his promise. What is he building? I will build my church. And in the New Testament, we see that Jesus does that primarily through the planting and building of local churches. Just to switch analogies for a minute here. The church is also the bride of Christ. Again, you know that. I just remind you of it. The church is the bride of Christ. And Christ doesn't ignore his bride or neglect his bride or fail to pay attention to her. No, Jesus loves his bride so much that he died on the cross to redeem and to save her. And he continues day after day, even to now, to watch over his church, to nurture his bride, to care for her, and to wash her with the water of the word. Here's the application. Here's the challenge, brothers and sisters, for us all. If Jesus loves the church like that, and if the church is the institution on earth Jesus is committed to building, shouldn't we, as the redeemed people of God, love his church? Shouldn't we be passionate about the church? Shouldn't we give our lives to build what he himself is building? Shouldn't we use our talents and our gifts and our abilities, our time, our talents, our resources to help Build the local congregation, the local church God has placed us in? I know you know the answer. Yes, of course. And at this point, I want to testify to God's grace here in this body of believers. In Grace Community Church, so many of you do just that. You care about what Jesus cares about. You're passionate about what Jesus cares about. And you are giving yourselves week in and week out, to building this church. You are serving on setup and teardown, children's ministry, sound team, multimedia, security, bridge, ushering, greeting, and a host of other ways. You are serving. I mean, it is so humbling just to walk in here on a Sunday morning and see so many of you serving 
your volunteers, giving up your time, your energy to serve and build this local church. That is an evidence of grace that so many of us are involved. So many of you are involved doing that. And it shows that you are passionate about what Jesus is passionate about. And you do care about building his church and building his kingdom. And as your pastors, Jeremy and I, we thank you. We love you and we both thank you. It is a delight to serve the Lord alongside each and every one of you. I do just want to take this opportunity to encourage all of us. Let none of us become weary in doing good. Let none of us, not one of us, become weary in doing good. Instead, even if we've been serving for a long time, and I know some of you have been serving for many years, even decades, even if we've been serving a long time, this is Jesus' church we're talking about. So I want to encourage you, even as I encourage myself, let us keep going. Let us keep building. Let us keep serving and laboring side by side. One another for the cause of Christ and the building of his church. And as we do so, let's keep in mind, we aren't serving and giving and laying our lives down merely out of habit. We are doing so with this vision in front of us. We love the church. We love the church. We're passionate about what Jesus is passionate about. And we want to join Christ in building what he is building. In view of this, brothers and sisters, in God's strength, may we do all we can in the days ahead to strengthen this mission base so that new disciples can be made and those who are already disciples can mature and grow all the more. I do just want to mention, if you're not active serving in some way, I want to encourage you. There are plenty of opportunities here. We currently have needs in most areas of serving on Sunday morning. Uh, By the way, children's ministry always needs help, and we need help even right now. So uh, if you're not serving in some specific way, especially on a Sunday morning right now, uh, please feel free to speak with me or Jeremy or Dale especially, (laughs) uh, who he is, Dale, you serve us so well as one of our deacons overseeing everything that happens here. Thank you. We thank God for you. Can we just thank God for Dale? <laughs> Dale and his wife, Susie, as you know, you don't need me to tell you, they are choice servants of the Lord. And this passion has captured their hearts. And it's why they've been serving here, like so many of you. For two plus decades. What, what a blessing. So if you aren't serving in a specific way and this message is stirring your heart, please, talk, please speak with, with Dale. Uh, children's ministry, please come speak with me or one of our children's ministry coordinators. We'd be glad to talk to you about that. Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. Jesus, the owner of the house, was a faithful servant. May we be faithful servants too. I know you are. Third way final way this passage challenges us. It challenges us to persevere in our faith. This point's going to be a little bit shorter because this is really introducing the main theme of next week's message, which Jeremy will be giving. Verse 5 of our passage says, excuse me, verse 6, we are his, that is Christ's house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. 
Here's the point of verse 6. The evidence that we belong to Christ and that we are His is that we will hold fast to our confidence. That is, we will hold fast through the various of trials of life to belief in Christ and in the gospel. As we've said, a major theme in the book of Hebrews is not giving up. Not giving up. But instead persevering and continuing in the faith, come what may. And I want to remind you that this is an emphasis that not only the original readers, but all of God's people in every, every era desperately need. We desperately need it because as the rest of the chapter bears out, the temptation to harden our hearts in unbelief and to gradually wander from the Lord is always present. It's always present. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, you would know that as a church and denomination, we firmly believe that the scriptures are clear. Those God genuinely and authentically saves, he keeps. In Christ, our salvation is secure. And we praise him for it. That said, scripture is equally clear. Just because someone at some point responded to an altar call and committed their life to Christ does not then mean that they can let go and let God. Just because someone committed their life to Christ way back in 1975 or 85 or 95 or whatever, whatever, doesn't mean that from that moment on they can just let go and let God and live however they will well please. It doesn't work that way, biblically. The biblical testimony is, as believers, we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12 We must strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12.14 We must bear fruit in keeping with our, with our repentance. Luke 3.8 And ultimately, those who profess faith in Christ and yet fail to evidence the fruit of the Spirit and a changed life reveal they were never authentic Christians in the first place. We are His, verse 6. That is Christ's house. If, 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 indeed, we hold fast our confidence. So what's the application then? May we endeavor every day in God's strength and in his power to hold fast to our confidence. May we remain ever vigilant to hold fast to the gospel, to hold fast to the truth, to cling to the truth, to not wander from the truth. The book of Hebrews challenges us in this way, and we're going to hear more of this challenge, so prepare yourself. (laughs) We're going to hear more of this challenge next week as we continue on in chapter 3. For now, I simply want to encourage us, let us allow this challenge today and in the weeks ahead to have its intended intended redemptive effect in our lives. Let us allow this exhortation to sink in deeply and to stir us, to shake off any complacency and compromise in our lives and to cling to the gospel and to pursue Christ and to pursue holiness with all of our heart soul, mind, and strength. Let's bring this home. If the band could join me on stage. This morning we've been challenged from God's word to intentionally, deliberately, and purposefully focus our attention 
on Jesus Christ and on the gospel. I want to ask you again, is the gospel the main focus in your life? Is that your central passion? Is who Jesus is and what he's done? When your mind has a free second to wander somewhere, does it go there? Does it go to Jesus? And what a wonderful Savior is? And what he means to you and how thankful you are and how much you love him? Is Jesus the first place your mind goes to? If Christ and the gospel is not the main focus, then consider what needs to change. What needs to change? Again, if you haven't read it, please read CJ's book. Please pick it up at the end. If you have, please, I'd encourage you to reread it. God wants to help us. He wants to help us to be a people of faith and people of joy and people whose souls are at peace, even in dark afflictions. And that happens only one way, as we focus more attentively, 3-1, on Jesus. We've also been challenged this morning to help build what Jesus himself is building, the church. So, as I know it's in your hearts to do, I just want to encourage us, let us keep going with this, brothers and sisters. Let's keep giving ourselves to building Christ's church and building this local church specifically. If you want to discuss what that looks like for you, please talk to me or to Jeremy or to Dale or someone else. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. Each of you has spiritual gifts. Each one of you, the Lord has ways that he wants to use you to build this local church. Many of you, most of you, God's using already. May he continue to stir the spiritual gifts in our congregation. May he continue to stir by his Holy Spirit a passion for service, a passion for laying our lives down, a passion for sacrificing and giving ourselves as we seek first the kingdom of God and seek first his righteousness. Finally, we've seen how this passage challenges us to persevere in the faith. Brothers and sisters, may God by his Holy Spirit help us to press on and persevere to that to the end, till that day when we see him face to face. May God help us to persevere day by day, continuing to love Christ, obey Christ, and serve Christ until that wonderful day. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word and for particular for this passage. We thank you for how this passage has challenged us to focus on Christ and to labor to build his church and to persevere in the faith day by day. Lord, we now ask you by the Holy Spirit, seal this word home to our hearts. Help us to do all these things in your strength for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said together, amen. Let's stand together.